Stanford University. The fundraising environment for early stage startups appears to be more challenging than ever, but despite this, entrepreneurs do what they know how to do best. They figure out how to solve problems, they plan in, and they do it. What we are going to do in our panel will explore some of these major challenges and how leading investors in early stage companies turn these challenges into opportunities and how they advise entrepreneurs how to manage these challenges. We will, we will explore three specific challenges in some depth. Uh, the regulatory environment, specifically FDA, reimbursement, and healthcare reform. And then this will be followed by a discussion on the investment criteria that our panelists use when evaluating different opportunities and general advice geared towards our students who are considering entrepreneurial opportunities in healthcare. What I would like to do to make this more interactive is pause at the end of each segment and get questions from the audience instead of waiting to go until the end. Okay, so let's start with the FDA. Uh, and there is widespread perception that the FDA has become more demanding when it, when it comes to the evidence that it requires to approve a new device or drug. So Guido, do you agree with this assessment and what do you think is causing this? Thank you, Stefanos. Um, so I definitely don't want this to become a session of bashing the FDA. Um, that would not be fair, I don't think. Uh, but uh, I'd like to focus on the facts. Um, I would like to reframe um, Stefanos' uh, statement uh, by saying that the um, FDA has become very risk averse and it's also become uh, quite unpredictable. So we'll leave it at that as far as, uh, as defining how the FDA is perceived at this point in time. There are a number of things that I think are driving those, uh, uh, those, those issues. And I would say the first place is that the commissioner and the staff at the FDA have become political, assign, uh, political nominations. And um, so whenever you have a political, uh, political nomination, um, the situation becomes highly directed towards risk avoidance, but also I think significantly it goes to enforcement rather than innovation. It's not that innovation has disappeared, but I think there is a pendulum towards those two issues. And um, uh, that is reinforced, I think, by highly publicized uh, recalls. And uh, we have, uh, everybody remembers region, um, and uh, Biox, for instance, and these people. I think it's, uh, the joke goes around, and I think it's a fact that people at the FDA, their main career objective is to avoid uh, being in a congressional hearing and being on TV for many hours and being, uh, being uh, you know, uh, in, uh, have basically an inquisition by, the, by senators and Congress and Congress people. I think on top of that, and again reinforcing that, is that um, there's a very high turnover in, of the FDA staff, of the reviewers, and of the people supporting that. And consequently, we're constantly educating those people. And I think every VC uh, in the room and at this table here can quote examples where we are really, um, uh, as our, uh, as our um, 
process has gotten longer is the probability that the reviewer has changes is quite high. And then I think we have classic examples where you get a new reviewer and they say, well, I don't think your outcomes are the right outcomes or I don't think you should have actually done uh, this kind of trial. It should have been this kind of trial. And so you have to kind of uh, comp uh, update this. Uh, uh, or you have to kind of start all over. So um, I'll stop with that there, but I think the lesson to be learned from all of this is just to take into account that these are facts and you're, we're not going to be able to change that. And so I think there is one big uh, advice that I have for everybody who starts dealing with the FDS. Uh, start early and continue to communicate and continue to educate because you can't just wait until your trial is over and then go and talk to the reviewer because first of all, they may not know anything about it, how, why you got there, and they may have very different opinions. Okay, so uh, Beth, let me build a little bit on what Guido said and ask you to drill into some of the different strategies that you have seen early stage companies pursue uh, in terms of either working with the FDA or working around the FDA. Yeah, and around the FDA is what we're seeing more often. Um, so I, I think for, uh, for those people in the audience who are entrepreneurs, the um, most important thing to do is, is know what the requirements are, the regulatory requirements are, before you decide to pursue a project. Um, we often, all of us, fall in love with a project and an idea and think, well, of course, um, FDA payers and um, providers will embrace the technology. Um, but in this environment of cost containment and healthcare reform, and um, as Guido nicely defined, very conservative FDA that is really more focused on risk than benefit, um, make sure you know exactly what the requirements are. And ways to do that, there are regulatory consultants. There are quite a few groups who have, um, who are former FDA staff members who have consulting firms, and um, they tend to be very good advisors for small companies because they've lived on the other side. Um, be careful about people who maybe worked in companies and they're independent consultants. Um, oftentimes, you, a small company we see do, does not get the right advice, and so be as diligent on checking out your consultant as you are on making sure your technology is going to um, be effective and safe in humans. Uh, the second thing is what about non-FDA, so outside of the US opportunities? Uh, what we're seeing more and more is entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs and they will be creative in, when faced with the problem. Um, it's, it is often the case, particularly on the device side and also somewhat on the drug side, that you can get approval for your product or at least introduction into humans faster outside of the US than in the US. If you go down that path, it's a fine path to go down. For devices, for example, you can get revenue earlier experience in the marketplace, um, but also beware that it, the requirements may be very different for the FDA, and so you may have to double up on your efforts in order to bring it, the technology back into the country. Um, <laughs> it's, 
I'm going to take a little different tact on this. And for my issue, I come to this from an early stage investor's perspective. Um, and what Guido said is right, right? The, you know, the sort of seas have changed, the people turn over all the time. And so when I'm looking at an early stage company that's not going to see, you know, first in man at the FDA for a couple of years, and then it's just a safety trial, so frankly, the FDA, you know, is, is pretty lax. And so it's going to be five, seven years before you get to pivotal trials, which is when, you know, you're dealing with real endpoints and, and people really start to pay attention. Um, the all the people are going to be different, right? So I, you know I can, and certainly whatever is interesting to the FDA today and a view they have is going to be different in five or six years because science is going to have changed, standards of care are going to have moved, you know all all this sort of stuff. And so there's frankly only so much information you can get really early on. Um, and so my tact honestly is, um, and my experience set today is re re replicative of that, which is. If you're doing something that's really innovative and meets a really big unmet need, the FDA can be a great partner today, right? They can want to get they can want to get your product out on the market because you're going to, you know, really help patients' quality of life. Um, one of the issues I think that we are all complicit in, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, over the last decade, is trying to figure out a way to um, to sort of skin the time, risk, money conundrum of building a biotech company, which has been really, really hard, right? If you, if you, no one's made money in biotech on average for the last decade, right? Entrepreneurs haven't, venture capitalists haven't, public and certainly public investors haven't. Um, and so the, and so one of the things that people did 10 years ago on the back of a couple of really successful companies like Alza was they tried to figure out lower technical risk ways of creating value as, as early stage investors. And so that led to a lot of in-licensing outcasts from pharma. I'm sure Beth canned a couple of programs at Amgen and then sort of pawned them off on Guido or me. And she's like, yeah, I know this program sucks. And Guido and I are like, oh, well, those Amgen guys, they're big and dumb and slow and stupid, so we'll do it better, which is not really a strategy, right? Let's be clear. And so you, that, that, then you get to the FDA, right? And the FDA says, oh, well, you know, they're doing it with, this, with DP, DPP4 agonists now. When you're the fifth program in a class, the FDA holds you to a fundamentally different standard than if you're a first-in-class or you've proven in phase two that you're a best-in-class program, right? In those latter cases, they're going to work with you. They're going to say, okay, you know what? You don't actually have all the analytical stuff worked out, but we want to get this and we're going to give you more leeway on these sorts of things. If you're the fifth, you know, statin or pick your, pick your biological mechanism to get out there, the FDA says, wow. I've got drugs out there that have a million patient years of use. You've treated, you've, you know, even with the more data that's required, you're in 3,000 or 4,000 patients. You haven't even come close to tackling the long tail of, of, of side effects, right, that everybody else who's been on the market actually has dealt with because they've been in millions of patients. So they're going to hold you to a higher hurdle rate. But for me at least, now my long ramble will come to an end, is if you, if you really focus on unmet and innovation, and you have real headroom there, the FDA can, can be a great partner. Absolutely, you know, people turn over and you, they, their communication can be better and stuff, but it can actually work out. Well, I, I'd like to be a contrarian. I mean, I, I think the, it's the house full, half empty. There's no doubt that the FDA has become unpredictable. And as a result of that, you know, what used to be a very nice morals on the venture side has collapsed. Uh, so why don't we invest in companies that don't require FDA or very low FDA? And what it allows you to do is to get some of the best people in the industry who no longer want to go for 10 years, you know, let's bet the house and see if anything works. 
uh, it's easier to get capital. Um, and since this is why we define this space as health tech, which is the use of technology to make healthcare more cost efficient. There's a lot of very successful company, and Tom and I worked on a few of those, where the product doesn't require FDA oversight. Now here's the bad news. If you look at what I call mobile health, which is a very hot area, and you, you listed Todd Park earlier, he's pushing for that. So you have one side of the government to say to investor and entrepreneur, please start companies and all of that. And here comes our friends, the FDA, and I'd be nice to Guido, I won't trash them, uh, who's saying, oh, but time out, I'm going to regulate. Oh, by the way, I'm going to regulate you, but I won't tell you what the rules are yet because I haven't figured that out yet. So you have, for example, MDDS, which recently has come out to say any iPhone, iPad, any mobile device that's going to be relaying information that comes from a medical device is regulated. Okay. And so, and, and you see company like Airstrip, which is a successful company that is taking the iPhone so that the obstetrician can look at the, at the vital signs of the fetus while it's being monitored, and that's a 510K. And that's because the FDA took the position, they are reconstructing the signal, so therefore we take it to higher standard. The other interesting part is that where did one of the ex-FDA head of device went? Microsoft. Well, I never heard of Microsoft in medical device before. So the good news is that, you know, I think there's huge opportunity that have low FDA. The bad news, we have no idea where the FDA is going. And as long as the FDA is thinking it's safety and efficacy, and they have to decide what's efficacy as opposed to Europe that's just doing safety, we're going to get that problem. And so I think we need to use Todd Park. Todd, are you here? So I'll talk to him later uh, to see if he can help us there because we're having two sides of the government giving us a very conflicting signal. Okay. Um, so, Beth, we had in an earlier discussion, you mentioned that you're involved in some initiatives where the venture community is actually trying to influence the conversation or influence uh, the FDA. Can you share with our audience what are some of the things that you're doing and what are some of the concrete steps yes. that uh, we can take? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So, um, as you can hear, there's, there's a lot of concern over what's happening in the U.S. and um, it's easy to complain about. Um, it's harder to fix the problem, but it's, in my opinion, if you complain and don't try and do anything about it, then shame on us. So uh, about a year ago, well, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, a group of uh, venture capitalists who are members of the National Venture Capital Association, NVCA, got together and um, decided to become activists in tackling this real problem, which is um, inconsistency, unpredictability, and um, uh, too much focus on risk as opposed to benefit at FDA. We formed a coalition um, under the NVCA umbrella called um, uh, Medical Innovation and Competitiveness Coalition, MEDIC for short, and um, it's a group of venture capitalists and companies. So for the first time, venture-backed companies are coming together with their uh, funders to try and fix the problems at the FDA. Uh, we have over 250 members now, and um, we've, we are putting together a strategy to try and address the issues. So what are we doing? The first thing we're doing is um, collecting data and having facts as opposed to um, just stories and emotions around the problem. Um, we actually have a uh, Jessica um, Howe, who's a, a Stanford um, business student, is an intern with us now and um, is working on collecting uh, data for us that includes things like 
um, you know, what really is happening with the timelines for approval, FDA versus Europe. Um, Josh Mackauer worked with a Stanford MBA student to put together a study on medical devices that has been published, presented in front of Congress, and is very effective because it's fact-based information. Um, so that's one initiative. We're going to start working with academics to help us make sure that our findings are published in peer-reviewed journals. We're going to target New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA so that we get covered in the true medical journals of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the Washington Post, because that's what Washington pays attention to. Our strategy is focused on um, really looking at how can we um, provide enough resources at FDA and incentives to move innovation forward, and so identifying where the innovation gaps are and what the unmet needs are and providing pathways that will facilitate um, earlier approval or um, in a more predictable approval path. Um, we're focused on leadership at FDA. If you look at what's happened over the past uh, couple of decades, um, after David Kessler was uh, the commissioner where he was in place for more than four years, uh, we haven't had a commissioner, as Guido said, their uh, political appointees in place for more than two years over the past decade. So there's a leadership gap that needs to be addressed, and we're going to have to work with Congress to figure out how to legislate some of that. Um, there's opportunities coming up in 2012 where the um, user fee acts for both drugs called PDUFA and the user fee act for um, medical devices called MEDUFMA um, are coming up for reauthorization in 2012. So it provides a legislative uh, vehicle to make actual changes to um, affect whether it's resources or processes or approaches at the FDA. So work in progress, but, um, but we are actually getting traction and uh, we are working just two other points with the other um, large organizations, so with um, BIO, with Avamed, MDMA, so the other, or the other um, organizations that primarily represent large companies and have some venture capital or, or small company represent representation, but not a concentrated representation. They're very excited about what we're doing because we can talk about job creation and entrepreneurship and innovation, which is now, you're hearing that from President Obama, it's going to be a theme for 2012 for the election. So we're at the right place at the right time, so we're quite optimistic. The other organizations that we're working with are patient advocacy groups. Um, it's all about the patients, right? That's what we all, at least hopefully, many of us care about at the end of the day. And so they are going to help us um, to move some of these initiatives forward. Great. So uh, if you have any questions on the FDA, something you want to discuss with the panel, uh, please come forward. Uh, and then we'll, if not, we'll uh, move on to the next topic. Um, Okay, so uh, let us now turn to, uh, to the changing landscape, the changing reimbursement landscape. Uh, and uh, Anne, uh, some of the changes in this landscape, such as accountable care organizations or medical homes, or some of the things that Todd Park mentioned in his earlier talk, can potentially create market for technologies that in the traditional fee-for-service environment uh, would never be appealing. What are some of these new opportunities that you think may be created in this new reimbursement environment? Yeah, I think there's a, a revolution, and I agree with Todd Park earlier, if you were there, that you know, we, 
we are changing the whole payment system. The problem is that the rules aren't fully defined yet. And the problem is the fact that we don't have any good metrics we know how to measure so we can define the payment. But it's coming. And the government is like a, like a freight train, you know, forcing people to break their barriers. So there's going to be huge opportunities uh, in figuring out how we measure certain quality indicators. So for example, on the hospital side, the government has already established there's going to be never events that we're going to measure. We're going to publish that. We're going to basically penalize you up to 1% of all your payment per year. 70% of that is going to be based on these quality indicators. And 30% is going to be, guess what, patient satisfaction, unheard of on the hospital side. So you have a whole bunch of new companies are coming in the marketplace to say, we need to measure that. We need to build a database and data sets. And we need to find ways to measure that. So that's the first set. The second set is the government is, is doing some pilots are very effective where they're doing bundling. And what they're doing is to say, we're going to give you one flat payment uh, when you have a heart attack. And that includes everything, the, the implantables, the physicians, the locations in the hospitals, the rehab, and everything else. Here's the challenge. All of these different providers right now are being paid separately. And now we're going to find a way, which is the accountable care organization, to basically share this money. And the question is that, what are we going to measure? How do we decide who gets what? So for example, in orthopedics, they've done a pilot, and they show a 25% drop of the cost of the orthopedics and a major shift of the type of implants that they use. Well, so great. So who gets that savings? The orthopedic surgeon? But what happens if we give a low-quality implants? And, and so all these things need to be sorted out. That creates opportunity because creating these data sets, the data mining, creating the tools to communicate for organizations who are legally separate. This is not Kaiser. This is multiple entities. So data is going to be king. Application managing that is going to be king. And, 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 and it's opportunity for entrepreneurs because the rules are not defined yet, but they are coming down. So in addition to that, you have another alphabet soup called HIE and REC. So this was Health Information Exchange and, and uh, Regional Extension Center, which are being funded by the government for the next two to three years to help set up the medical records. This organization needs to find a way to have their own sets of products so they can be self-sustained as entities over time. So there's a whole bunch of companies we've looked at that are providing tools to allow the physician to improve their productivity as they do medical records. How do we make sure we know how well they're doing so we monitor them? And how do we basically allow this organization to be effective and have their own product set? So it's, it's a new market that has emerged out of nowhere. And there's, there's a huge uh, hot race going there and opportunities. And the good news, I would say most of them are not FDA regulated as of today. Um, so Tom, I know that your firm is investing heavily in uh, healthcare infrastructure technologies. So this may not be the best term to describe what you're doing, but uh, maybe you can help me come up with a Technology-enabled services. Technology-enabled services, that's much better. So not so much on therapeutics. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts maybe briefly on the FDA issue, but then more importantly on the changes in the reimbursement environment and what do they mean for, for what you're investing in? Are they making it, are they creating new opportunities? Are they making some technologies more attractive or are they making it more difficult? Uh, that's, uh, okay. That's, uh, there's a lot of questions there, but I'll, I'll try to answer. I think first from our firm, we invest in healthcare IT, medical devices, and life sciences, and we have made some money in the last three years, Brian, in that space. <laughs> but you know, I'm not scanning; it's going to continue. But we, we've uh, we've uh, focused uh, very much on avoiding the FDA recently, or looking at companies and services that are delivering non-FDA approvable 
devices that take a long time to get approval. And so we have a company in the infusion pump business that we have a 510K kind of map that we believe will work, and it's, it's something where we don't have to worry about impatience. So we're trying to look at novel technologies, enabling technology. But I'd say in the last two years, we've not made a new medical device investment just because of the FDA and the dollars. And the reason for that for us is we're a small firm focused on early stage startups. And the challenge is if you have 15 or $20 million more in a medical device company, and the average selling price is 100 million, you know, and there's billion dollar projects, but it's really hard to give a return to our investors. So I think we've dynamically shift more to technology kind of companies. So we've invested in a couple companies that we think are gonna save a lot of money, but aren't dependent on the government. We have a company called Teladoc, which is a physician console company that really is trying to keep patients out of the EMR. And so what they're able to do is get significant savings for employers or government and the insurance companies to look at a different care uh, model to avoid, you know, get substantial savings. We also have a company called uh, Life Image, which transports images kind of in between hospitals and, and avoids uh, duplication of, of uh, subsequent MRIs or, or x-rays. So we think what we're trying to do is find very compelling paybacks for hospitals or providers or employers so we don't count on the government for any money because we think it's, it's gonna be tougher and tougher. Okay. And uh, a follow-up question to that. So what are the different ways in which you can establish this payback for hospitals? Well, for, for hospitals, if we take the medical imaging space, uh, this company in our portfolio, Life Image, what happens is you get an MRI at Stanford and you walk over to Palo Alto Clinic and ask them to look at the image. They give you a CD, which costs about eight bucks to, to pay for that CD and the people. And you go over and then Palo Alto Clinic uploads that in their system and then they put it in their PAC system. And so that costs them $7 to do it. And so instead we can move something in the cloud for 38 cents and it can go directly from Stanford to Palo Alto Clinic. And so there, they're saying there's labor, they can look at how many images they do, and if you're an oncologist, you're not using those images forever. And so it's really kind of looking at a new way of kind of cost benefits where people are under, under scrutiny. So for Life Image, it's a very easy payback, and we go in departmentally. The one thing we say is when we sell to hospitals, we sell as a department. We don't want to go to the CIO and president and think it's a big capital spending which is what most people do. We like to go into a department, oncology or radiology, charge them $5,000 a month and some usage, and by time, you get early, quicker adoption and you can show payback. Okay. So Brian, I would love to hear also your take on the changing investment uh, environment and what, how that affects the opportunities that you are pursuing. Uh, okay, let me make it a little bit broader, okay? I wanna camp on to some, some of what Ann said. Um, I think uh, I think in in sort of technology-enabled services, let's call it that, because in in healthcare IT, you're never sure going to have you know Microsoft Windows 95 that gets sold on the shelf at Best Buy, right? It, there's always a bunch of work and sort of ongoing work that goes on with it. Um, the a, a couple of things that are pretty interesting going on in that space um, that sort of add on to what sort of Todd and, and then Anne were talking about. Um, one is that. The government, um, you know, through Todd's efforts, are, they're not—they're not trying to prescribe a path for people, right? They're trying to—they're trying to provide raw material and data, uh, and they're trying to—to to legislate. 
the outcomes that they would like. Docs using electronic medical records, you know, any of a number of things. And they're leaving it up to the private sector to get from point A to point B. And, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> All of us turned ourselves around. Um, that was the FDA call. <laughs> yes. And, uh, the guy who told us to turn off our... Yeah, exactly. Turn off your cell phone. Turn off your cell phone, buddy. Um, so so that, that's very different than, you know, 15 years ago, oh, you know, the government's going to legislate the use of SNOMED, the medical language, for, for all, you know, for all charts, period. So there's a, lot more, there's a lot more play in there, number one. Number two, and maybe this goes into sort of, you know, never waste a good recession or something, but employers are finally, you know, evolving their HR and benefits work from simply a cost center, we try and help people, to, wow, you know, we have a 3% net margin business and we spend 6% on healthcare. If we could take 10% out, out of our healthcare budget, you know, it makes a meaningful difference to our bottom line. And so you're actually getting in the CEO, CFO ranks of big companies, them caring about what, health, what happens with healthcare spend and how can you more efficiently do it. Um, and then third, uh, you know, again, thanks to Todd and Tom and people, um, I think there's there are now a couple of sort of guideposts for entrepreneurs. They say, you know what, you can actually make money in healthcare IT. So back in you know, 99, 2000, 2001, it was really easy to invest in healthcare IT because there were like 10 companies and two venture capitalists and no competition at all because people thought it was a horrible place to invest. Today, there's a ton of people who want to invest in it. There's obviously all the stuff that you know, Todd's talking about and Ann's talking about, about what to do, but there's also the fact that Athena Health went public and it's a billion and a half dollar market cap company. And so, you know, if you're out there thinking about, I'm a really terrific programmer, entrepreneur, where do I want to apply my talents? Wow, you know, there's a signpost for, I can be really successful in this space, not to mention all the other stuff. So, okay, can I build on this for a second? Yeah. Historically, the venture industry, or my colleagues on my right and left here, have been focusing on efficacy. Let's provide better tools for the physician as he's taking care of the patient. I think the opportunity right now is mature there for all the reasons we talk with the FDA and, and the change in payment. The true opportunity is team care anywhere, which is looking at workflow. And if you focus in cost savings, reimbursement doesn't matter. So I think the opportunity right now, will it be workflow within the hospital, which was the VZQ model in first telemedicine, which is now exploding everywhere. Uh, people are now developing platform for team care anywhere, which is a physician could be playing golf and monitoring your, your EKG and see if you have a heart attack and if you could comes in there. Or if you're having a stroke, there's people like at the Cleveland Clinic who are developing uh, e-anesthesia there so that they can do anesthesia in Dubai. And it, this has nothing to do with reimbursement. This is where it's happening. That's exploding as a market. There's going to be a multi-billion dollar company building that area. We need to understand, Stefanos, the big trends that are going on. And in the United States, the hospital is really becoming the center of healthcare delivery. And so the reason why all of these technologies are interested, interesting is because they're going, we're focusing on health, on savings for the hospital because the hospitals work on margins that are like supermarkets, you know, 2%, and they have profit centers and they have loss centers. And so that's why, on top of that, the, the government is putting billions of dollars into IT, and therefore it's, uh, it becomes interesting. So we invest in like what I would call the SAPs of uh, healthcare, uh, healthcare technology. But that's, that's beside the point. I think 
accountable care organizations are already happening. What's going on is the hospitals see that uh, they need to align the physicians. So now 70% of the cardiologists are in the United States are aligned with the hospitals. That means they have become employees of the, of the hospital. In, uh, in, in the orthopedic industry, the same thing is going on now. There are 25% in two years. It's expected that about 60% of the orthopedic surgeons are going to be hospital aligned. And so all of you entrepreneurs need to really focus on how I, am I going to make um, healthcare delivery or in, uh, IT or whatever it is, how, if you are focused on the United States, how I are, am I going to make it more efficient, more... Uh, and so, you know, what sometimes therapies hide as real therapies, but they're really improving the efficiency of the physician or the productivity of the, doc of, of the doctor. So, for instance, when we had the heyday of the, um, of the stents, what it really did was it didn't save lives. You know, only in AMI have stents saved lives. It made the doctor look good, and it made the procedure go very fast. In 25 minutes, you had a procedure done, and it made the doctor extremely efficient. I think we kind of need to look at um, me to look beyond the, the facade, what's really going on behind it, and it's improving the efficiency and improving the effect, efficacy of the, of the healthcare providers and the whole system behind it. And it's going to be focused around the hospital, so, I think. So I, I disagree slightly. Okay, good. <laughs> I think if you talk to Humana or Aetna, they think they're going to be driving the ACOs. So I think it's not clear yeah. who's going Oh yeah, going. it's in flux. And it, that has a big impact on your strategy as you start thinking about who is your customer and how you're going to affect it. Yeah. Because everybody's going to try to own, uh, you know, we're going to have to do with less money and fewer resources and how do you do it? And so everybody's kind of scrambling. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. it's, no your, it's, it's, it's a good point. I, the thing I was going to say, which I think is, I, I hope, would be one of my takeaways for you guys, is in the technology-enabled services, healthcare IT space, it's really hard to get traction if you're adding cost up front, okay? Mm -hmm. every, every business mm -hmm. plan you see has this long, wonderfully involved uh, rationalization about their ROI. Um, and, it, and unfortunately, the, the ROI, to get customers to actually buy, the only ROI that matters is sort of the first five minutes. Um, and, and so you need to figure out how to position yourself really as a replacement cost, somehow upfront, in order to get anybody's attention. Because as Guido said, you know, they run on grocery store margins at best, right? And so if you're saying, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, this, this is an added cost today, but you'll be able to fire these four people and take out this stuff and that, you'll get absolutely nowhere fast. But if you can say, you know, one of Athena Health's wonderful attributes was, you guys are paying 7 or 8% to get your bills paid, we'll charge you 5%, right? Now there was the, you'll get your bills paid faster at 75 days versus 45 days to get, there's a huge cash flow benefit. But if it was that cash flow benefit, but you pay 7% and we're going to charge you 10%, it would have never gone anywhere. So you know, can I, it took us 10 years to get 19,000 doctors. I mean, that was a long acquisition, seven cycle. So, so that gets to the, other, the second point of the conversation, which is nobody Sorry. wants to be your biggest customer in healthcare IT, right? So the, your, your, the ability to get uh, bigger and bigger customers, right? What is it, still a third of docs or one to three doc groups? It's hell to build 19,000 19, customers on, in one to three doc sales. 
right? But in order to get the 100 doc orthopedic group, you have to have another 100 doc orthopedic group, um, you know, as, uh, on, on, as a reference client. And so that chicken and egg is what makes healthcare IT take a while. So just I, I want to um, add another perspective. So you've heard about the hospitals and you've heard about physician groups coming into accountable care organizations. The other trend that's happening in the industry that is, uh, I believe is going to create opportunities is in the healthcare reform bill called the medical home. And if you think about, there's another term of art called gaps in care. And if you think about um, what happens after a patient leaves the hospital or what happens when they're not being covered by the physician in an active um, care, there are a lot of gaps that create opportunities and also can be attributed <coughs> to cost. So let's use specific examples. Um, so what a company, I'll give you examples of some of our companies but other companies that we're not investing in but it just creates interesting um, opportunities. So one example is a company that we've invested in called Corventus that has a patch that you know is the size of a band-aid you put on your chest and it allows you to measure um, uh, cardiac um, measurements in addition to uh, temperature and, and other variables that will be of interest to the physician. Applic applying that to um, a post-hospital situation for a congestive heart failure patient where the um, 30 days post-hospitalization, there's a very high rate of re-hospitalizations when people get out of the hospital, go home, sit on their couch, eat a bag of potato chips, and go back into heart failure. If you had a device that could monitor those patients and be able to have an alert on an iPhone to a physician that says, hey, you know, your patient's um, uh, weight has gone up because you can measure impedance and you can see that they actually are retaining fluid. You could call that patient and say, "Take more Lasix and and you know don't you don't eat so many potato chips." So example of you know a medical home kind of application and an opportunity to deal with um, high cost for the system, heart failure patients bouncing back into the hospital. Another example is not one of our companies, but it very good entrepreneurs who are focusing on sleep. Um, sleep disorders is a huge problem, uh, particularly sleep apnea and pa as patients are getting um, more obese and have other comorbidities, sleep apnea has gone up. Right now you have to um, go into a sleep center. It's very costly, it's inefficient. A company called Watermark has um, created a system where you can actually do the sleep study at home. So it's not for all patients, but another example of innovation and creative ideas where people are going to pay for it. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, Todd mentioned the, the, the game, you know, someone finds the game that, that people play. There's a lot of focus these days on changing patient behavior. It's a really tough nut to crack, yeah. right? I mean, honestly, you could, you know, half the doctors in the, in the world would put out of business if people did, what, three or four things, right? You know, ate right and exercised, uh, you know, and didn't smoke. And yet, everybody does that. Well, less so with smoking in the U.S. now, but, um, but it's, it's a fantastically interesting area and one that's really, really hard. Um, and it'll, it'll be one of, the, one of the interesting things over the next five or 10 years, and it probably will take that long, is who cracks the code for how to, over the long term, get individuals to change behavior with regards to their health. There's a, a variety of interesting stuff going on today. Um, unfortunately, the decay rates are horrible, right? And it's sort of just like drug adherence, right? 
you know, it's tough mm -hmm. enough to get, to get an individual to take 10 days of antibiotics, much less, you know, take their hypertension medication every day for a year or something. It's, it's just, it's an, it's an amazing human thing. Although what, what we're seeing, I mean, just as an example, another um, one of our companies called Red Brick Health has been, um, it's a technology enabled service, but they've been using uh, gaming psychology and technology around weight loss in particular, and they've um, done this in the employer space. So they get employees together in teams, you know, just like Biggest Loser on TV, uh, but they're doing it with, um, in the employer population, and uh, it's been, we've published a lot of data, but you can get people to lose tons of weight. I mean, literally tons. Um, if, you know, as a collective group, if, um, if you put out a challenge and you make it competitive and you use technology that people can relate to. So Brian's right, I mean, the, the ability to have that last is where the challenge is. You can get people there with current technology. I think the real opportunity is gonna be, well, how do you keep them there? You know, how do you really, you know, move that competition phase to, you know, chronic, Behavior change. Yeah, I mean, Very one of the hard. challenges is the brain is plastic, but it takes 16 weeks to rewire the brain, and then the brain fights you for 16 weeks. Yeah. And people are hoping that with gamification, the dopamine receptor will be activated to basically help you basically fight that, but nobody so far except Safeway. That's right. Uh, has been able to demonstrate that. Now, to the credit of Safeway, if you don't know the story there, they use some of these tools. I know they use Red Brick, but yeah. uh, they, what they showed is that they found a way around HIPAA, to their credit. They had three sets of lawyers I had to pay to figure a way around That's it. That's right. And, and they were able to demonstrate that they could track BMI, smoking, all the bad behaviors, person to person, year to year, and they had amazing data, which shows they kept the healthcare costs flat which for public companies probably worth, in their case, you know, a few billion dollars yeah. market cap. That's right. Yeah. And, and so it works. What well, now we need to do is to take this to the consumer in a way that is not being forced by the employer. And so I think fundamentally it's there. I mean, my advice as entrepreneurs, don't try to fix whole healthcare, don't try to fix diabetes again. There's a lot of people <laughs> doing that. Yeah. Uh, but try to get something that's very specific. There's one company we're very interested in called One Recovery, and they were focusing at people who were going out of alcohol rehabs. And they were doing a relationship with the Betty Ford Foundation, using social media and Facebook and all these other things there to really get you that support system there. And they have some amazing data. So it can be done, you just have to be very specific. Great. Um, so what I want to do next, again, if you have any questions, feel free to come forward. Go to the mic. Oh, sorry. Um, I had a question around uh, using video potentially at home. I've been uh, you know, thinking a lot about you guys talking about uh, ideas to either replace hospital visits or behavior change. Have you seen any interesting startups or ideas uh, where, where people are intervening in the home health space but through video? Telemedicine is absolutely exploding. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen several successful companies and amazing data coming out for psychiatry. And it's not only in, in the hospitals for the ER, because there's an application there, but also in the home. Some of the issues there are state by state. There's different regulations. So the US in that sense is a bit difficult. And then who's going to pay? And, and so all of that, you know, some pays are paying, some are not paying. Then you have to get authorization. So, but it will happen. So I think the, um, what, uh, I think telemedicine or handheld devices, I think do two things. And I totally agree with Dan, you can't solve the world's problems. You have to be very, very specific. But I do think that these devices 
uh, empower the patient or empower the family uh, of the patient. And I think that's really um, verse one of uh, changing behavior, improving people's health. And the second thing, and very related to that, is it gives instant feedback and it gives instant rewards. That's where the gaming starts, you know, because you give people virtual presence, you know, a thousand points if you do this, 3,000 more points, and et cetera. It's kind of the, um, uh, I guess, the frequent flyer principle or the gaming principle. And, and so I think it's uh, putting putting solutions in the hands of the person is really, really important, I think. Beth, do you want to add anything to that, to the telemedicine? No, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's happening. I think video in the home. I mean, a lot of all the technology is, is enabling um, uh, opportunities and changes. So, so is the there, is, so to, to build on that question to the broader panel here, is that a proven business model that no. it's in telemedicine or no. are we still looking for the, a business model? I, I wish I challenge. knew how to make money in that. So, so the only one that's proven right now is within the hospital setting because your, your, your value proposition is faster care, better decision at lower cost. Okay. So you're seeing an intensive care like unit easy. in the ER where, for example, pe people are using specialists for neurology for stroke. They're using psychiatrists to see if this patient needs to be admitted, maybe under a manic episode and all these other things there. In the home setting, which is the next big wave, that's unclear, but who pays? Actually, yeah, actually, that's the whole problem. You're saving costs. I think you kind of have to, back to the reward system. You, in a way, you have to build incentives for the patient. And uh, yeah. it's saving costs and building incentives. Yeah. No question. We, we do have a portfolio company called Teladoc, which is using video and physician console. So it's not like uh, Living Independently was a company in New York that was trying to monitor all the hospital, you know, uh, a home. But I think, I think what you have to do is there's uh, 49 states that you can do telemedicine in, so don't go to Oklahoma. <laughs> you can't do that. And each medical board has its own definition of what, uh, how you can practice telemedicine. So it's a, it's a very tricky and a very regulatory kind of environment. It seems intuitively obvious it should happen but you know, there's uh, a lot of other mm -hmm. things around there, so I'd be a little cautious, at least from my experience. So it almost sounds like the first thing for telemedicine innovators to do is go deeply to the regulatory environment of specific states and yeah. find what would be good states to go after and also reimbursement. Yeah, there are nine, nine states. <laughs> I, I think, I, from my perspective uh, on the telemedicine side, it's always been a question of where can you find a big enough market, so, you know, the places I see people try and do it are in psych and derm, right? You take a picture of someone's derm problem, yeah. you can send it to another doc and they can look at it. Psych is the, sort of the same way. Um, you know, there people been trying for decades or more um, to do it. It's, it's a tough space until you find the business model that, that works out near term. Thank you. So, so Google, Google traffic uh, collects uh, cell phone data, GPS data, from millions of cars and then gives us that nice cool map with the red and the yellow and the green. I wonder if you're seeing anything uh, analogous to that in the healthcare area for population-based management where the data that's out there, I mean I work for a county-based healthcare system, we have the sickest of the sick, chronic diseases, diabetes, chronic congestive heart failure, everything. But we haven't seen anything yet and I wonder whether so, you all have Yeah, so there's actually it. been some stuff going on there um, for flu outbreak, right, and, and, and things like that. Um, they're, they're really interesting public health benefits. Um, it's pretty, 
questionable for you or me what the specific individual benefit is that creates a business model out of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so when you know the avian flu was going around, it was actually pretty interesting, and Google did some stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, w but and there are going to be lots of things like that that come out of sort of the massive data. Um, but you got to figure out. You know, it's less about video or for telemedicine or this. It's more what solution are you going to provide, right? And then figuring out what what you what data you can pull to provide that solution. Because certainly in healthcare, where you know people are focused on patients, it's you don't really want to create sort of business intelligence tools, right? It's not like giving somebody an Excel spreadsheet. You need to give them answers, and so you have to sort of go that extra step. There's a company called Community Health, which is a startup privately founded by angels, and they take the government data and, and, and repackage it at the level of each of the town. So it's being paid by the, the San Francisco, I think mm. it's having a Berkeley and all of that. And it shows them kind of their ratings on how they are as far as allergies, pollution, flu outbreaks, and all these other things. The question, I think, like Brian is saying, this is data. But I think big, big opportunities taking data and making it into an actionable solution. And that's what's missing there. What do you do about that? Yeah. Hi, thank you very much for your very insightful discussion. Um, I'm working with a group of engineers and designers to develop uh, personalized electric vehicle targeted to disabled people as well as elderly population. And my question is, if you're developing a physical product, physical medical device, at what point should you look for a partner, a bigger, say medical device partner or some, someone who can help you scale, not just, uh, or maybe help you co-develop the product? Or do you think it's something possible that a small startup can really get to the whole population? Uh, well, I, well I, I'm sure there are plenty of different opinions, but uh, as um, capital becomes more scarce, uh, particularly venture capital, let's face it, uh, at this point in time, we encourage our, our uh, CEOs to look earlier rather than later for partnerships. And it's important how you structure these things because, you know, exclusivity and we can get in all the details, we can spend the whole panel on that. But uh, our tre the trend in ours, on our side is to look earlier for partnerships. Yeah, I mean, on the angel side, we, we push for that even probably earlier than the venture industry would because we try to decrease our chance of dilution later on. And so we basically ask the entrepreneur, what is your core competence? And really make sure that's the one you protect. And the things that are your core competence, outsource or partner. And so that's why we create our ecosystem where in addition to angel investors, we have and venture investors, we have industry partners. And the whole idea, this happened to one of the companies we invested in, one of the big corporations, is already talking to them to take them uh, to do the branding and get them to the consumer. Because a lot of the application, you know, it's really hard to get a chance of distribution lined up. That's where most of the capital gets spent on. I think it's, I think it's largely defined by the project, right? I mean, uh, almost, I, I'd, I'd encourage you to, before you get started, think about the when the risk comes out and when the capital is needed and as, as Anne says, you know, when you need a set of capabilities that are outside your purview um, and make sure that you like what that constellation of requirements is, it looks like. I mean, there's, every venture capitalist in the world loves it when, you know, risk gets taken out of a project much faster than capital goes in, right? Because then, you, then you're creating value. Um, but 
but I think it's by and large defined by the specifics of, of, your, of your projects. As, as you know, Beth will know better than anybody, you know, the difference between you know, going after an orphan disease with, with a drug and going after you know, the next statin is, is it's enormous, but it's predefined by, by, the, by the project you choose. Absolutely. So next question. Hi, uh, I'm a researcher. I work with patient data from electronic health records to extract uh, in analytical information and essentially recommendations for physicians, giving them risk factors about patients' health. And some of these recommendations are subject to sensitivity specificity criteria, and I was wondering, are these subject to any regulatory uh, requirements? Because essentially, one can use these systems to give uh, risk factors that uh, a patient has a 50% chance of getting certain disease, et cetera. And these, because there is a lot more data, these predictions are becoming more and more accurate now. And some physicians could essentially make decisions based on those predictions, which are data-driven. So, so there are a couple of companies we've looked at where trying to develop critical care index based on data and then try to make correlation. And, and some of them, one of them was specifically saying, I'm going to predict and do a triage of which patient may get a heart attack and therefore in the ICU you should focus your resource on those patients. And the issue there has become first the FDA is going to get involved because it's truly a diagnostic and you'll be influenced the outcome of the patient. And these are going to be really long and painful trials. Other people are trying to find a way around the FDA, which I think is extremely dangerous too, where they say, well, it's just information, a company called Rathmuck, for example, and they've developed this index looking at the nurse uh, notes and they claim to have very high predictability. The problem is that, you know, I talked to my friend from VisiQ, is that they have probably 1.5 million patients there, and when you do the correlation, you find out that most of the critical information is not in medical records. It's a whole bunch of other factors there. So the question, you, know, you make this correlation, you try to scale that up, but they don't hold. And so, so it's a very difficult market, and then you have this, this problem with the FDA who claim that you do a PMA, and PMA is just like a, you know, $30 million just to start into the gate. You should not only think about the FDA, but also about the legal system. You know, one exception can put your company in real bad situation. I'd add on to that sort of human nature, right? The, your ability to get a doctor to do something proactively based on information is a lot easier than getting him, him or her to not do something, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you've created something, to Ann's point, you know, you have you have a patient coming into the ER, and you know this uh, this approach says, oh well, you don't have to worry about that one as much, right? All of a sudden, you've asked the doctor to do the negative experiment, right? And it's okay, don't do something to that patient and see what happens. You can, <laughs> after years and years and years. <laughs> you may be able to become standard of care and sort of say, you know what, you didn't have to do X or Y or Z, but it's really hard early on. Yeah, yeah and Literally. I think, I mean, what's gonna drive a lot of this is the if the accountable care organization, that whole system gets into place, the incentives around using data to influence treatment patterns, diagnostic patterns, will start to play out. But, you know, it's only being done in pockets now. Yeah, we're really talking about societal values. In yeah. this country, we want a doctor to do something, and the doctor gets rewarded to do something. Other parts of the world are much more comfortable, watchful, waiting. <laughs> so, you know, but that's philosophy. <laughs> so I know we have two more people waiting for questions, but I want to move on. I have a few more questions I wanted to discuss with the panel. So make sure that you come up at the end and you get to the front of the line. Um, so, uh, one thing that I would 
uh, I told you that I wanted to explore are what are your investment criteria? The three or four top investment criteria, and I know trying to oversimplify a very complex process, but if I would almost turn this question around, uh, entrepreneurs in the audience, when they approach investors, what are the three or four things that they can do really well before they come and talk to you so that they can make the conversation more effective? So I'm almost turning the original question around, but trying to make it more practical. Uh, if you would have the opportunity to teach them what they need to do to be effective in their early stage conversations with you, what are the three to four things that you would tell them? And, so uh, I've, go I've, first. I've, we still see people are in love with their technology, which is wonderful. I mean, you want the passion. But at the end of the day, it's to show what. What is the value proposition? Who is going to use it? In healthcare, there's multiple stakeholders. Each one of them can kill it. You know, it's a different person that uses the product. It could be a nurse. It's a different person that has to recommend it. It's a third person that's paying it. A fourth person that's regulating it. So what's the value proposition for each of the stakeholders? Why will they care? But more importantly, how are you going to prove it? And that's where people always forget that. The how you prove it could be $20 million of market trials. And that's people underestimate that. So really focusing on that. Then, of course, the second question is barrier of entry. It doesn't have to be IP. I'm very comfortable having no patents. But you need to have a strategy if you're really that successful and you open the floodgate on how to change people's behavior. It's a big floodgate. Uh, you know, how are you going to protect yourself? You know, and that could be a business model. It could be a lot of different strategies and how you embed yourself into a workflow. But think about that. And, of course, the team, the team, the team. You know, do you have all the key skills set in the team? And if you don't, how can you get access to that with advisors and other people so that we as investors know we don't have to you know, be that active you know, in the early days especially? Brian? Um, I, I agree with everything that, that Anne said. Um, I, I guess the one overarching notion, look, depending on the stage of the business and whether it, you're taking market risk or technology risk or you know, business model risk, the, the, the specifics of, of any different business opportunity are, are going to be very different. Um, the, thing that, the thing that I would say is, is that you gain a lot of credibility coming in with a, not only a, you know, a passionate portrayal of why you love what you're proposing to do, but, but where are the issues? Where don't you have the answers? Um, so that you're not coming across sort of as a used car salesman and me saying, gosh, okay, now I got to go figure out what they didn't tell me, and, and so what's wrong? Um, yeah. And it's not to say, look, you're going to come in and lead, right, with, well, here's my idea and here are the eight issues with it. But, but through, the, through the discussion set, if you have actually have a thoughtful portrayal, maybe you have some risk mitigation strategies on some stuff, maybe you don't, right? Um, it's, it's much more interesting because then you can actually have a conversation and engage Guido or Beth or anybody here to, to actually try and think with you through the issues because if, if everything were easy, people would have done it already, right? So one of the really interesting things is doing something people do don't, don't think can be done, right? Because then there's a huge barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. That would be mine. Tom? I, I think most entrepreneurs, as we look at criteria, I find a lot of people come in and waste our time because they don't target us and who the right investor is. And so, you know, we look at, you know, we have many overlaps with Venrock. So if you look at our portfolio, you'd see, Work, process workflow in the hospitals is company key and inpatient. So we have a wear point together as a portfolio. I look at kind of patient engagement, you know, where's the consumer as a patient? And we have some companies' vitals in that. So I think 
looking at the portfolio and say, do they, are they tuned to that? You know, I mean, now a lot of people are all are saying, you know, there's a scarcity of resources that we've heard earlier and how's the provider going to adjust and, you know, different alternatives as, as we've described. But I think if you kind of look and say, okay, who am I marketing to and what is their sweet spot? And we're early stage, so we're very focused on IP and some people have done it in the past, where if you're a late stage, you know, it's kind of where am I to the market and IPO. So I think people have to do a lot more kind of qualifying it. And that way, for me, it's, it's easier to say somebody's focused and knows what our sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. So we are absolutely unqualifiable, I will say. We'll do anything we think we can make money at. Early stage, late stage, <laughs> biotech devices, healthcare IT, US, XUS. We have examples of all that in the last two years. Um, and so it, for us, it depends on what we fall in love with. And how do these guys find out how to qualify you? So no, we can't, we're not, it can't be. You just got to call and see. Well, although, although I do, so I agree. I mean, but there are, you know, Venrock is a broad-based firm that, that does a lot of things. Cardinal is more focused. So I do think, you know, if you have a focused solution, you know, you, it, one is the firm, but also the partner. So if you can find a, an investing partner who actually has experience in that area, that can be very helpful to you. Because you know, it's a, it is a partnership, hopefully, with your um, finance team around you. Um, the, the, other, the, the other thing that I would add is really picking up on what, um, what Anne was saying. And, and that is if you just simplify everything and say, start with the end in mind. So what's your product? What's the problem you're solving? And if you understand that, and you actually should spend the time to either go through all of the steps. If it's a regulatory approval, you know, what's your label? What's the pathway? Who's going to pay for it? If, you know, is it going to matter? What's the competition? Um, you know, what's the world going to look like in 2015 or 16, right? Don't, it's not about solving the problem for today, it's about what, looking and, and anticipating and then being ready for the, the new environment. Um, so I, I would focus a lot on that and if it's, a, if it's a technology where after a rigorous analysis you say, this is a great technology, but you know, it's really not going to meet the need you know, if it's a late stage, obviously now, but if it's an earlier stage, five plus years from now, then probably think of another idea. Yeah, so yeah I can just have the last word. Um, I'll just reinforce everything what I've said. So, if I personalize it, is uh, I really uh, uh, think very much through the questioning and all the business plans. Can I work with this person? Can I work with the team? And what the weaknesses are of the team? And are they realistic about their capabilities? I agree. People who uh, make a good impression if they've thought to the entire, uh, if they've thought through the entire, uh, through the end game, and um, many of uh, all these presenters are overly optimistic. So uh, you know, there's no presentation that I haven't seen that there is a one billion dollar patients who need this device, right. um, and um, so I think coming down to very realistic objectives is, uh, you know, I, I think you gain, gain credibility because ultimately what you are looking for is, um, we're looking for a partner that we're gonna work with five or ten, five or seven years, maybe 10 years, because everything takes a lot longer these days than it usually is. And I also look for, is, has it, does it have a global application? 
you know, um, because now um, the pendulum is more to go to, um, uh, to outside US and has to have these people through. But it, it's nice that it, if it doesn't only work in the United States, but it works in other parts of the world as well. And, um, and so maybe that's a little bit of my background, but that's the kind of thing I work, I, I, I work with. And, and, and then, you know, particularly difficult for a starter is what's the track record? Have these people accomplished something? So this is a people business. The bottom line is this is a people business. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, we have five minutes left. Let me open it up for question. And the two people who were waiting earlier, they get the first pick. All right, I'll jump up really quick. I had a question around the liquidity events you're offering your early investors that are putting money into your companies. It used to be that you could, you know, go into the biotech or pharma and then, you know, potentially hope for one of these big companies to buy. But now I understand there's a lot of risk aversion, so you have to go much farther. So I'm wondering, for your early investors, what are you offering them? You know, is there somebody bigger in the IT service space that's looking at buying these companies? You know, is IPO even reasonable? What's the requirements now in the market? Uh, any comment around that? So, so just, that to, just, to cl just to clarify, you're asking uh -huh. about liquidity for early investors. Yes. That, so your liquidity events for your early companies, stage companies, are they looking to get acquired? Or are they pretty much, you're going to have to self-sustain for five to ten years before mm -hmm. you can get to some liquidity event? to pay back your early investors. Sure, sure. I, I, I'll go first. Um, okay. I, I'm willing to sell anything when someone's willing to overpay me for it. <laughs> okay. okay? So um, it's sort of a, a reasonable place to, to exist. Um, I think the likelihood that someone's going to be willing to overpay you for something is strictly correlated with how many other options you have, right? So. I, te I tend to invest in things and plan to build them for five or 10 years into big standalone companies. And if someone comes along in the meantime and says, gee, I'm willing to pay you an enormous amount of money for this, they can have it. Are you hearing of those companies today? Or are oh, they, sure they coming yeah. out? You know, in, in the healthcare space, uh, Plexicon got sold recently. That was a you know, six, seven year old company. Ardian was four or five years. Yeah. It's you know, sold for a billion dollars. There's a bunch of Yeah, so. exactly. There's yeah. a bunch of it that goes on. It's, the problem is there's a lot where it doesn't. But that doesn't have to do with the successes. That has to do with the sort of mass of companies that end up being kind of so-so. Yeah. And so I think it depends on the sectors also. I mean, you know, medical devices and biotech, you know, they have this long regulatory process and then market mm -hmm. acceptance. So by the time you're really on the market, six to seven years may have passed. And if you want a nice multiple of sales, you know, you unfortunately end up with this longer cycles. Now, in the health tech side, you know, which is why we're interested, we don't have any FDA. So we skip that two to three years of, mm -hmm. of, of, of pain and suffering. And so we're able, you know, and, and Tom has some similar experience there, that you can get revenue in two to three years. So by that time, you can have a nice little exit in four to five years. And as an angel investor, that's, a, that's what we're looking for. So you're looking for how much money needs to come behind, mm -hmm. when is the company going to get revenues, when can you get to profitability, and then the option gets opened up. The one issue with an early stage company in at least a healthcare IT space, broadly defined, is there's tons of products, it's very hard to define yeah. and build a business. Yeah. And that's Pick why for many years there are only a couple of us invested in the space because it's very hard to kind of segment and figure out where your competitive advantage is. So mm. it's still very tough. And so most likely you're gonna sell to someone and you just hope for more than you put in. So the good news on the health tech side, just give me my plug, is that we have new players. So we have talked about the problem on the medical side, the industry consolidated. So you have 
you know, the upper billion dollar company have all consolidated. So it becomes really hard to get their attention to move the needles. If you have $15 million in sales, you know, so what? No big deal. If the company is $20 billion in revenues. Now, on the health tech side, you have companies we've never seen before. You have Walmart, you have Adidas, you have Nike coming in there. You have some of the Cisco and hardware players. You have Microsoft and Google. And they are eager to buy products. So I hope is that it's going to be not 10 years. Actually, there's an interesting trend going on is uh, we invest in early stage biotech companies. Not a lot. Very, we're very, we think we're very disciplined. And the expectation is that we will sell them before they have human data. Mm -hmm. uh, or we will do a very big alliance with a, uh, with a large company that, can, that has plenty of cash. Because there's no shortage of cash with this big, with big pharma. All right, thank you. So, our last question. Okay, um, thank, you, thank you for the great discussion. Um, I'm a Stanford medical student. I'm working on a health, healthcare IT project with some friends. And um, my question is about, for healthcare IT, how to ensure security and how to ensure that you're complying with all the HIPAA regulations, uh, especially as a small company or just starting out? Yeah, that's a big issue. In addition to that is validation of the data. It's not only security of the data, but is the data not garbage, honestly? And there's going to be a whole industry uh, kind of maturing in this area there. As people are developing these huge data sets, like the Cleveland Clinic has put together a company there, and they're taking all the data from the state of Ohio, and they're trying to sell this to the medical device industry and pharma. Well, the question is that, how do we know the data is good? And, you know, and so it's not only the protection of the data, but how do we even know it's qualified data? So, so there's two big areas there that there's a lot of startups trying to go into the uh, verification of the data and security of it. Yeah, I, I guess having done healthcare IT for a while, right? I mean, Tom, we were, we were investors in Athena and we're investors in a company called Castlight now. Um, it's kind of just a tax. It's not, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. When HIPAA came out six or seven years ago, there was like, oh my God, what is it gonna be? Um, it, it's kind of reasonably well known now. It's just sort of a, a time and money tax. On it. So there are a ton of people out there who, you know, can help you with it and, you know, patient identification and, and this and that. Um, it's just a question of how, you know, what, what sort of sand in the gears is, is it going to be for you? Okay, great. So uh, this brings us to the end of our session. I know there are many more questions. Feel free to come to the front uh, and talk to the panelists, but please join me in thanking them for a great job. You get more yes, now you, you, now more you get the real applause. <laughs> For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.